Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's seminar on IFPRI's 2023 Global Food Policy Report on Rethinking Food Crisis Responses, which will focus on Africa today. Uh, my name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm the Director of Communications and Public Affairs uh, at IFPRI. It will be coming soon to the Q&A session, so please submit your questions in the Zoom uh, panel. And if you would like to listen to the presentation in French, please use the globe button located at the bottom of the screen and select French. Bienvenue à tous les francophones. Si vous souhaitez suivre les présentations en français, cliquez sur le bouton globe situé en bas de l'écran et le sélectionnez français. It is now my pleasure to turn the floor over to Samuel Benin, who is the acting director of if IFPRI's Africa Regional Office, and he will welcome all of us to this seminar. Over to you, Sam. Thank you, Charlotte. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you, depending on where you are connecting from. I welcome you to the African discussion of the 2023 Global Food Policy Report on Rethinking Food Crisis Responses. The food crisis in Africa is dire. About 20% of Africa's population is food insecure and undernourished. This is more than double the population affected in any other region of the world. Conflicts, natural disasters, diseases, and economic shocks have increased food insecurity across the continent. The Global Food Policy Report on Rethinking Food Crisis Responses, which is IFPRI's flagship publication brings together researchers from across the Institute, the CGIAR, and external partners to examine how to improve crisis response and build resilience in the face of shocks to food systems around the world. As with previous years' discussion of their respective reports, for example, climate change and food systems in 2022 and transforming food systems after COVID-19 in 2021, we have an excellent group of speakers to discuss the report's key findings and implications for Africa and its regions and countries. They will also discuss the key food crisis-related challenges facing the continent, how various national and international actors are responding to the crisis, as well as policy options and investments that can be adopted to address the challenges. I wish you all a fruitful discussion during this one and a half hour period and as the sun rises here in Davis, California, where I am connecting from. Thank you and over to you, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Sam. Now we turn to Jos Winnen, who is the Director General of IFPRI, who will give us the overview of the key findings of the report. Uh, over to you, Jo. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Charlotte, and thank you, Sam, for this uh, introduction. Um, uh, thank you for everybody who is on the call here uh, today with us. And I think this really important event. We have launched the uh, Global Food Policy Report of 2023, focused on rethinking response to food crisis uh, several weeks ago in Washington. But we believe that our engagements in the regions and our launching in the regions with regional participants is an extremely important uh, extension of an overall, I would say, a, a launch uh, 
package or a launch strategy. So we really look forward in uh, getting your contributions. And so what I will focus on is some of, in, in a relatively short presentation, some of the more uh, global um, arguments, global findings, global developments. And then in, in several uh, presentations afterwards, we will focus more specifically on, on the African and the Sub-Saharan Africa situation and the implications. Next slide, please. Let me start by a picture. This is um, a picture of the cover of The Economist, the journal that many of you will know well, I think, from exactly 10 years ago, June 2013. And so the, the, the cover article, uh, which was also the main theme of the uh, issue of that, that issue of The Economist, focuses on how poverty will soon be gone in the world. And so it shows the dramatic decline, dramatic improvement in poverty that we had observed at that particular time over the past, the previous 25 years. And the prediction was that this would continue to go forward. Next slide, please. This is, uh, if you then look at the, uh, the malnutrition data, this is the hunger index, not the hunger index, but the undernourishment indicated from FAO. These were, of course, not surprisingly strongly correlated with this reduction in poverty. And in 2013, we expected that this would continue both in terms of the number of hungry people in the world and the percentage of the total population. Next slide, please. Then things have changed. In the middle of the last decade, really, there's been a structural change in uh, the development of mal malnourishment and hunger in the world. And to, uh, for the negative reasons for basically have turned around all the growth that we have seen in um, the, 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 the positive developments in reducing malnutrition hunger have been turned around structurally. Next slide. And what we see is that not only we've seen this structural change that has happened in this, next slide please, but at the same time we have seen that over the uh, past 25 years, so that's the right-hand panel there, these are the price uh, indicators for food fertilizer, and fuels, okay, which are strongly correlated, we have seen very strong volatility. When we saw prices go up uh, in about 15 years ago, 2007, 2008, we, we were think talking, thinking about the price shock. Shock means a deviation from a normal, which is stability. If you look at this picture, it shows that 2000, the last 25 years have not been characterized by stability, but by shocks, by volatility. And of course, this is crucial to take this into account if we develop a food policy strategy going forward. Next slide, please. The, uh, there's a number of factors that have played a role in this. Climate, conflict, and COVID, the three Cs, um, have all played a very important role. So on the right-hand panel, you see the uh, an indicator of the trends in extreme weather events, be it droughts, be it floods. And you see that over the last 40 years, these numbers have gone up very significantly. And so we are living now in a very different world than before. And this is, of course, contributing to, it's contributing a number of things. It's contributing to lower productivity, to increased malnutrition, and to enormous uh, shocks in the world, uh, at basically affecting people's livelihoods. Going for, uh, next slide, please. The um, very discouraging, very worrisome evolution is if you look at the number of forcibly displaced people in the world, and around the same time, about a decade ago, we see a very strong increase in the number of displaced people in the world, forcibly displaced people in the world. And so we have now more than 100 million people who are forcibly displaced up from about 40 million people in the 20 years from 1990 till 2010. So this is a really major change. And this is of course crucial if you want to um, address these issues of malnutrition. And this is typically there's 
uh, they are correlated with acute malnutrition, acute hunger in the world. And so these are not uh, proportionally distributed. Typically, the, the poorest people in the world, the most vulnerable, also women and, and uh, children are most um, negatively affected by these developments. Next slide, please. Um, this is the framework in which our uh, 2023 global food policy report was, was designed, was written, was uh, the analysis was done and the chapters were, uh, were written. And so effective crisis responses are not a new um, issue, are not a new request, a new uh, question to be addressed, but it is increasingly urgent and increasingly relevant in the world of today. We believe that our report contributes uh, cutting edge analysis from IFPRI and from our partners. We work together with several partners, both in the CGIR and, and, and beyond and, and to other, from other uh, organizations also in the various uh, regions in the world about the crises and their impacts on issues like food security, nutrition, poverty, and livelihoods. The report offers a series of concrete strategies, and we have uh, regionally differentiated approaches in the report to address regionally different uh, questions or, or, or circumstances. Next slide, please. Uh, the chapters have, um, sorry, there's about seven uh, chapters in the report uh, along thematic issues, if you want, and then we have uh, six regionally uh, differentiated chapters, or different uh, six chapters on the different regions with emphasis on, on particular regions. And of course, today we will talk about the, the Africa regional analysis and, and the implications. So the, the action areas where the chapters are organized around have to do with overall the rethinking of the response, a new strategy or a more urgent strategy, early warning systems, uh, humanitarian responses and, and anticipatory actions, value chains, very important, social protection, sixth chapter is on, on gender specific issues and on uh, migration. And in the remaining few minutes, I will go through each of them and, and make a couple of, of points. Clearly, this will be picked up by the presentations uh, later and the discussions later. Next slide, please. Uh, in terms of early warming, early action systems, these are uh, very important. I think we are also, we think we're also today in a very different world than we were 25 years ago. Technology, particularly in terms of digital, about um, observations that we can do, data that we can collect and also process much faster, allows us to deal better with these things. It's also needed. It's not just um, looking at one particular issue, but I think that the, the, a comprehensive uh, approach, a comprehensive set analysis to deal with the complexity of these crises. And so we have to integrate these systems so to make sure that we get not only anal uh, have the data, also analyze the data and come up with indicators which can be used by policymakers or by organizations in this field, also private sector, to prepare themselves for um, shocks that are coming. This, of course, leads then to um, the anticipatory actions. Okay, if you have the data, if you can have early warnings, then how do you use them? How do you deal with them to make, um, to prepare people better and to anticipate what's going to happen? And also if the shocks come to um, be ready for dealing with them. And so again, data are important to eliminate risk, exposure, vulnerability, mitigation, it's very crucial, okay, and so the more you know, the better you are prepared, the lower the cost will be. And of course, the governments and the governance and the improvement of the targeting is important because that will increase the efficacy, the efficiency of the measures. Next slide, please. 
Um, value chains, as I mentioned already, are, are very important. An important lesson we learned from COVID-19 is that despite a lot of very worrisome development we saw early on, and there has still been significant impact and, and, and shocks to the value chains, our value chains have, have shown to be more resilient than we actually anticipated them early on. There's been a massive amount of innovation, both in terms of structural, institutional, technological, uh, management innovation in these value chains. And so that I think is encouraging in the sense that we need to work on this, we need to support this so that we can have our value chains anticipate shocks, be prepared to deal with them, et cetera. So again, this relates to, there's a role for the private sector here, for the public sector, et cetera, and for a number of organizations such as ours in providing information to help these and evidence to help the private and public sector agencies or actors to deal with them. Social protection systems play a very important role in this world. They are particularly there on, on, the, on the consumption side, I would say, where the poorest in our society may not have the capacity to deal by themselves with the shocks that come on, on, on their side. And so they can deal. We have learned a lot about social protection systems. Some of them have been expanded during COVID-19. And I think institutionally and structurally, this is an important development to build on uh, going forward. And clearly, we have to integrate the resilience process, the shock uh, perspective in, uh, in the design of these uh, pro social protection systems to make them more effective. Next slide, please. This is the last uh, point. Uh, women, and so the gender issue is really important when we look at these shocks. We know that um, there's very important gender disaggregation in terms of uh, gender uh, specifics in terms of how shocks are affecting uh, different groups in society. There's also a very important role, I think, in terms of in response and that we have a gender disaggregated uh, response system to deal with the problems and to uh, make our systems, our societies more responsive, uh, more uh, resilient to this. And of course, be there to respond and to focus not at the short run effects, but also on the long run effects. And again, Make sure that the data that we have are gender disaggregated. This is important. Setting gender targets in the crisis response and, and the longer run um, objectives is important. And empowerment of women is, uh, of course, very important, amplifying voice and agencies in their communities. The last point is more specifically targeted to the migration issue. As I already documented, there's been a tremendous growth in uh, forced migration over the past decade. So clearly, if we want to take into account a resilience response for societies as a whole for the world, we really uh, cannot consider this like a, a side issue. This has to be central to our approach. And so this, has to, this leads to a number of implications regarding infrastructure, institutions, policies that help deal with them both for the, the home country and the host country. And, um, and so again, uh, data collection is important, but also turning these data collection into instruments, into policies, into guidance for dealing with uh, both the root causes of, of forced migration and the best way to deal with it when it happens. Next slide, please. So this is the final slide. It's a thank you to all the authors which have contributed to the report. We have drawn on, on many people, as I said, experts from within IFPRI and from our partner organization, both from, from global organizations and from national partners uh, throughout the world where we have uh, worked with. And with that, I'm turning it back to you, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Yo, for that overview of the GFPR. And now we turn to the Africa-specific examination um, of 
global food crisis response uh, topic. And John Limwengu is a senior research fellow at IFPRI. He is one of the co-authors of the Africa chapter. His colleague, Harriet Mawaya, was gonna join us to speak about the gender implication in particular, but she actually gave birth just a few days ago. So uh, John is going to step in uh, for her as well. So many thanks, John. Sam, uh, who also is a co-author of this chapter, already teed up uh, that sadly, Africa is perhaps the most impacted uh, continent by, by these series of crises we've seen in recent years. So we're all keen to hear from you about, uh, about the conclusions of that chapter. Thank, thank you, uh, Charlotte, and thank you, colleagues. Um, yes, so let me uh, turn the focus to Africa. Um, uh, uh, next, next slide, please. As uh, Sam already said, and, and Charlotte just uh, again highlight the fact that 20% um, uh, of population in Africa are facing uh, food insecurity and undernourishment. Uh, and of course, we know that Africa is not a country. Uh, it's a set of 55 countries. Uh, so we see a lot of heterogeneity across uh, the continent uh, with Central and Southern Africa being the most affected, followed by Eastern and, and Western uh, Africa as well. Uh, three countries, DRC, Ethiopia, and Nigeria, are, are topping the list in terms of the, uh, the largest number of people affected uh, by uh, food insecurity and malnutrition. Sub-Sudan and Angola have the largest share of population uh, affected compared to other uh, regions, uh, uh, Africa has more than double uh, uh, rate of uh, uh, food insecurity and uh, and uh, undernourishment. Uh, next next slide. And, and and of course, these the uh, the, the the drivers of food uh, crisis in Africa come from different angles. Uh, you have conflict, uh, weather related shocks, drought and flood, uh, poverty, uh, which all combine affect the demand, supply, and availability of, uh, of uh, food uh, across the continent. Uh, in terms of uh, weather-related uh, uh, pests, uh, we know that the fall army worm plague um, 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 uh, that started in 2016 in Western Africa is still uh, ongoing in some uh, part of the continent. The locust inf infection across Eastern Africa in 2020, uh, 2020. But on top of those non-climate uh, shocks, uh, some policies also uh, contributed to the worsening of food insecurity in the continent. Uh, for example, policy support uh, that favor ag export uh, over food commodity uh, uh, consumed. You have the decline of export prices uh, uh, which leading to lower foreign exchange, uh, rising food prices, higher food import, and then you have a cascade of, uh, of uh, a chain of, uh, of events, lower foreign exchange, leading to higher food import and declined investment in food system and other key public uh, uh, goods. On top of those, so you have the climate-related shocks, you have the ag policies, now you also have other shocks such as Ebola, uh, COVID-19 uh, 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 pandemic, the now Russia-Ukraine uh, war. So the incidence and severity of these drivers 
and shocks vary across the continent, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier. Um, next, next slide. Um, uh, and, and as I said, Africa is not one country. Um, uh, so uh, we have different shocks from different countries. Um, here, just an example, uh, in Burkina Faso, there was a coup uh, that uh, led to a disruption of the food system. Uh, in Chad, they are still experiencing desertification. Uh, in DRC, it's a combination of several uh, shocks, uh, high food price, transportation costs, the health uh, uh, as well, uh, Ethiopia, the civil war. So they, this is just a, uh, 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 to highlight the fact that whatever responses that we have must be country uh, uh, specific and of course shock specific uh, uh, so that uh, it's not one uh, fits all uh, kind of response. And, and that's precisely what the report is calling for, to rethink uh, the way we respond to these shocks by taking into account those local uh, 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 specific specificity. Next, next slide. And 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 the 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 universe of uh, people being affected by crust is not homogeneous. Uh, and, and one example you already pointed out uh, the, the the gender pointed out the gender. Uh, 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 the gender uh, uh, issue. Uh, we know that price uh, in several countries uh, 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 during COVID-19 pandemic, 30% uh, of the countries, 30% uh, of 33% uh, of women versus 30% of men are being affected. Uh, job loss in South Africa during COVID-19, uh, uh, two thirds of the, the women were affected against um, uh, in, 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 in Liberia and Sierra Leone during Ebola, 85% were women, a loss of uh, trader income. Uh, and this uh, exacerbated with all the negative impacts already for women and girls, such as violence and sexually transmitted uh, diseases uh, with respect to Ebola outbreak in DRC, we notice the increase of sexual and domestic uh, violence against uh, women. In Guinea, 4.5% uh, increase in violence against uh, women. So we also, on top of that, are uh, uh, observing higher rates of chronic malnutrition among pregnant women and children in armed conflict areas such as Burundi, Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Eritrea. Nigeria, Rwanda, and, and Sierra Leone. Um, next. Now, the food crisis response and challenges in, in, in Africa. Uh, we have a couple of uh, 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 instruments that are being used to uh, respond to the uh, food uh, uh, crisis. Humanitarian assistance is the most uh, common and probably straightforward uh, large recurring cost. Uh, in 2022 alone, uh, planned for uh, sub uh, for uh, uh, sub-Saharan uh, sub Africa, estimated around uh, 17 billion dollar, but only 45% uh, uh, being funded by October 2020. Uh, there is a need uh, to continue to generate data, and knowledge, information by investing in early uh, warning uh, systems uh, as well. Uh, resilience building is very important. Uh, we don't build the resilience to uh, respond to shocks, to crisis, 
uh, this resilience uh, investment must happen prior to the shocks, prior to, to the crisis. Uh, that's so important. And in some countries, like in South Sudan, we see this humanitarian development peace nexus approach. It's not all humanitarian. It's not all development. Uh, it's not all uh, peace uh, building, but we need to come up with a holistic uh, uh, approach to responding to those uh, food, crisis, uh, food crisis. And of course, uh, there is also the need to repurpose some existing public funding for uh, food system uh, support, uh, because there is a potential for significant benefit here in reducing the cost of nutritious diet, improving food security and nutrition, and of course, reducing uh, greenhouse uh, gas emission. Uh, we uh, 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 agree uh, that there are some trade-off uh, um, in repurposing some of those uh, uh, existing public fund, uh, uh, reducing in agricultural production, it's more likely, and of course, farm income, just uh, to make sure that we work through all these uh, trade-off. Uh, next, next slide. Um, um, I'll, I'll move to the to, uh, next, next slide. I've, I've gone through this already. So um, as a way for, forward, um, um, again, um, uh, I will conclude with what uh, Albert Einstein said, that a fool is the one who does the same thing every day while expecting different results. So if we really want to uh, uh, see different results in terms of food and security, in terms of uh, 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 of uh, uh, reduction in malnutrition, we need to do things differently. I think that's the theme of the report, how we rethink the way we respond to this food uh, uh, crisis. And, and again, I mentioned the need to repurpose sub, uh, support policies uh, to reduce uh, cost and increase the availability of nutritious food. Nutritious food in, in, is important for improving resilience and recovery from crisis. Uh, we need to continue uh, building uh, uh, capacity for evidence-based foreign policy making and interventions, especially to build local capacity uh, uh, in, 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 in collecting data, in, in uh, generating knowledge that support the design and implementation of those policies. I mentioned the need to continue to invest in early warning system, but really uh, across the whole spectrum, uh, we need data uh, across the whole food system to support uh, those uh, uh, responses. And we need also to use the uh, system-wide enabling conditions for lasting resilience. Uh, uh, why? Because now we understand that whatever is happening in one component of the system has implication throughout uh, the system and ultimately to the uh, expected uh, impact on the expected outcome of the system, which is a sustainable, healthy diet to all. So I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, for highlighting the, the challenges, highlighting the fact that Africa is a continent, not a country, and that we need a specific country-focused uh, solutions. And also for really highlighting some of the ways forward and how we can build greater resilience in order to be less vulnerable to crises that unfortunately inevitably are, are going to happen. 
Um, we now turn to the part of our program where we're very pleased to hear from some of our external speakers who are responding to the report. Uh, these are um, guests from uh, the AU and some of the regional partners in Africa. We'll be coming soon to the question and answer period, so please continue to submit your questions in the Zoom panel. Our next two speakers uh, will be presenting in French, so for the English audience, please use the globe button located at the bottom of your screen and select English. French audience, uh, you will do use the same globe button and then select original audio. Nous répondrons bientôt à vos questions adressées à nos experts. Vous pouvez les écrire dans les fenêtres de chat sur Zoom. Uh, nos deux prochains intervenants s'exprimeront en français. Alors, pour notre public francophone, cliquez sur le bouton globe situé en bas de l'écran et sélectionnez original audio. Our first external speaker, uh, a warm welcome to Professor Julio Racontinirina. He is the Director of Health at the African Union Commission, and he is very kindly stepping in today for Her Excellency Ambassador Minata Samate Sesuma, who is the Commissioner for Health, Humanitarian Affairs, and Social Development at the AU. Um, Professor, uh, keeping in mind, as has just been indicated, that Africa is indeed a very large continent, um, nonetheless, are there, in your view or in the views of the African Union Commission, some initiatives or approaches that you would prioritize for building greater resilience to food system shocks that could promote food and nutritional security and health in all the countries of Sub-Saharan Africa? Oui, euh, euh, bonsoir tout le monde ou bien bonjour selon le cas. Effectivement, euh, l'Afrique est un des vastes continents dans le monde. Et pour faire face aux différents problèmes, il nous faut donc euh, une approche vraiment, euh, je dirais, multicontextuelle. Alors, la Commission de l'Union africaine a mis en place un certain nombre de politiques et de stratégies, et entre autres, le développement de l'Agence de développement de l'Union africaine, la mise en place également de CDC Afrique, Et actuellement, la Commission de l'Union africaine est en train d'opérationnaliser l'Agence africaine de médicaments et l'Agence humanitaire africaine. Ces quatre agences agissent à plusieurs niveaux, dans un niveau continental, dans un niveau régional, mais également au niveau de chaque État membre, afin de bien contextualiser les approches. 
ces quatre agences agissent également dans un continuum d'activités, puisque lorsque nous parlons d'insécurité alimentaire, il existe à plusieurs aspects. D'abord, l'impact d'une insécurité alimentaire, c'est la malnutrition. Et c'est pourquoi nous avons mis en place les centres, euh, le CDC Afrique et euh, l'Agence africaine de médicaments, qui agissent beaucoup plus sur la prise en charge des cas. Nous avons également, nous savons également que c'est l'insécurité alimentaire qui crée la malnutrition. C'est pourquoi nous sommes en train de mettre en place actuellement l'agence humanitaire africaine qui va agir en termes de réponse pour que les populations présentant ceux qui sont dans une situation d'insécurité alimentaire puissent vraiment bénéficier des réponses adéquates afin d'éviter l'évolution de la faim vers une maladie qui est la dénutrition. Mais avant tout ça, pourquoi existe-t-il cette insécurité alimentaire Les collègues de tout à l'heure ont déjà expliqué qu'il y a le changement climatique, il y a les conflits armés et certaines insécurités qui font que les gens se déplacent, vont même se réfugier. Et c'est dans ce cadre-là, et pas plus tard que... Il y a trois jours, nous avons commémoré la journée mondiale sur, pour les réfugiés. Et pour, dans ce cadre, que la Commission de l'Union africaine collabore activement avec des partenaires afin de répondre rapidement aux crises humanitaires liées beaucoup plus sur par les réfugiés, par les déplacements forcés, soit en dehors de son propre pays, soit à l'intérieur même de son propre pays. Et au sein de la Commission de l'Union africaine, nous avons un département qui est en charge de la politique, également de la sécurité, de la paix et sécurité, qui travaille dans le fond des déplacements forcés de la population afin donc d'entrer dans l'insécurité. C'est cette continuum que j'aimerais développer avec vous et ce continuum a une forme réduite aussi bien au niveau des régions 
au niveau de chaque pays pour que les politiques soient transformées en actions concrètes. Et enfin, qui n'est pas le dernier, effectivement, étant donné qu'il existe d'autres, mais je dois quand même me limiter dans le temps, c'est que lorsqu'on parle d'insécurité alimentaire, il y a l'aspect de pauvreté à côté. Et nous sommes, la, la Commission de l'Union africaine dispose et a la politique de la zone de libre-échange pour pouvoir entrer ou pour pouvoir développer les pays afin de pouvoir faire face par leurs propres ressources le développement et surtout l'autosuffisance alimentaire. Il y a un point quand même que j'aimerais insister également, c'est que l'année passée, c'était l'année de la nutrition et qui était un point de départ pour le développement aussi bien de l'agriculture et la lutte contre l'insécurité alimentaire. Ce sont donc les quelques éléments et comme vous avez dit tout à l'heure, l'Afrique est constituée par 55 pays qui présentent différents contextes. Et c'est pourquoi on a donc ces différentes politiques au niveau continental, au niveau régional et au niveau de chaque pays. Merci. Merci beaucoup, euh, professeur, pour cette intervention très, très intéressante. Um, thank you so much for your presentation. You've touched on so many important topics here that I'm sure we will pick up on in our Q&A session. You talked about uh, some new pan-African institutions to address uh, health issues. Uh, you spoke about the year of nutrition and uh, really thank you very much for, for this very important intervention. We now turn to Dr. Hubert Nanjafa, who serves as the Deputy Executive Secretary of the Permanent Interstate Committee for Drought Control in the Sahel. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, um, uh, Mr. Nanjafa, and the floor is yours. Merci, merci beaucoup, madame. Je voudrais dire bonjour et bonsoir à tout le monde. Et nous sommes heureux d'être donc à ces échanges-là pour partager vraiment notre satisfaction quant à la sortie de ce rapport qui, va, qui nous intéresse à plus d'un titre. Je voulais donc tout d'abord excuser Monsieur le secrétaire exécutif du CIS qui avait voulu personnellement donc prendre part à cette, ces échanges et qui se trouve actuellement donc, donc pour le pèlerinage en Arabie Saoudite donc pour des obligations religieuses. Donc c'est au nom du système civil que je prends la parole. J'ai en ligne quelques collègues qui sont donc connectés. Je voudrais d'abord remercier les deux présentateurs de, du rapport et ensuite euh, féliciter vraiment et remercier M. Julio de l'Union africaine pour le contexte planté. Et je suis vraiment, le CIL c'est en phase avec ce qui a été dit. Mais toutefois, nous souhaiterons effectivement donc compléter un peu 
tout ce qui est dit par le message assez centralisé sur notre région pour que vous sachiez un peu qu'est-ce que nous faisons avant de répondre à la question. Il faut dire que c'est à partir des années 70 que la région a connu ce qu'on appelle la fracture climatique qui est intervenue en 1969 et qui, depuis lors, la région n'a plus retrouvé son équilibre en termes donc climatiques. Et ceci a conduit donc la région à vivre au rythme, j'allais dire donc euh, euh, annuel, aux crises alimentaires et nutritionnelles, d'abord conjoncturelles et maintenant c'est devenu tout simplement structurel. Certes, les facteurs climatiques euh, expliquent beaucoup de choses. Mais le fait marquant à noter, c'est que dans cette région-là, tout, tout notre système de production est d'abord dépendant du climat. Ça, c'est un facteur important. Et donc, quand il y a crise climatique, ça se répercute directement sur l'ensemble des systèmes de production. Mais bien sûr, à cela, il convient d'ajouter d'autres facteurs qui accentuent donc la fragilité et donc l'insécurité alimentaire dans la sous-région. Et vous en avez cité, je suis d'accord avec vous, c'est l'insécurité civile que nous connaissons. Ce sont les inflations persistantes et bien d'autres facteurs, notamment donc euh, les facteurs démographiques. Donc, c'est éléments là, empirent davantage la situation. Il est devenu de plus en plus difficile de maîtriser la situation malgré les différentes volontés. Voyez-vous, depuis 2005, en allant jusqu'à 2008, certains pays ne vivent qu'au rythme de ces crises alimentaires et s'efforcent d'apporter des réponses tout à non coordonnées et sous diverses formes. L'essentiel, c'est de chercher à résoudre le problème par tous les moyens. Donc, les décideurs, effectivement, avec les, les partenaires, essaient donc de faire face. Au niveau de notre sous-région, avec le CIS en tête, nous essayons d'apporter notre modeste contribution. Et cette contribution est basée sur la fourniture d'informations pertinentes à la prise de décisions éclairées pour anticiper et apporter des réponses adéquates. C'est pour cela que chaque année, nous organisons donc quatre projets prévention et gestion de crise alimentaire et deux RPCA, c'est la rencontre de réseau de prévention de crise alimentaire basée sur ce que le sexe fait en termes donc de fournir d'informations qui relèvent donc depuis le suivi de la campagne agricole, euh, le déroulement du cadre harmonisé, en tout cas, un ensemble d'outils est mis en œuvre pour à la fin sortir des informations à l'attention des décideurs pour les aider à prendre en charge la question. Et donc, ces concertations que je viens de citer, reconnues au niveau régional et international, permettent aux parties prenantes de disposer donc à temps et quasiment en temps réel 
et même projeter la situation alimentaire des populations vulnérables au niveau de chaque pays, mais aussi au niveau de la région. Si vous avez suivi l'actualité, le dernier REGEC et le dernier RPCA ont relevé que pour la campagne qui vient de s'écouler, ben, nous avons près de 30 millions de personnes qui sont en phase de crise à pire. Donc, c'était la période de mars-mai 2023. Et si, depuis cette date, depuis cette période, et rien n'est fait de façon déterminante, il faut s'attendre donc au, pendant la période de soudure reconnue chez nous comme difficile, le mois de juin-août, que ce nombre a pu excéder les 40 millions. Donc, c'est vraiment préoccupant. Et ceci, ces crises sont localisées essentiellement au niveau du bassin du lac Tchad, donc du pourtour du lac Tchad, dans le Tchad de Niger, de Nigeria et le Cameroun, et dans la région des trois frontières que vous connaissez, profondément donc enroulée dans la crise sécuritaire entre le Burkina, le Mali et le Niger. Et donc, oui, il faut trouver des solutions. Et l'élaboration des plans de réponse apparaît comme une panacée aujourd'hui dans la sous-région. C'est donc aux concertations internationales et régionales. Ainsi, par exemple, de 2017 à 2022, les besoins pour les plans de réponse sont passés de 200 milliards, tenez-vous bien, de 200 milliards de francs CFA à 100, à 1, à, à 1 million, à, à 1000 milliards de francs CFA en termes de besoins pour financer les plans nationaux de réponse. Et du coup, quand on fait le point après, à la fin, pour la même période, on a mobilisé que 160 milliards en 2017 et finalement, donc, à la fin, on se retrouve à mobiliser 664 milliards de francs CFA. Voyez-vous le gap important qui apparaît pour financer les plans de réponse dans un tel contexte et dans une telle configuration, il est difficile véritablement de tacler durablement les crises alimentaires et nutritionnelles dans la sous-région. Ça, c'est au niveau des pays. Mais la région également s'y prend également. C'est ainsi que les OIG comme la CDAO et puis l'UMO essentiellement sont engagés dans la danse de recherche de solutions la CDAO avait sa réserve régionale, sécurité alimentaire, où les pays en difficulté peuvent aller faire donc des requêtes. Mais il y a aussi au niveau de l'humour, où effectivement des plans d'action peuvent être élaborés à travers donc le haut comité de, sur la sécurité alimentaire de l'humour, dirigé par le président du Niger. Donc voilà un peu le contexte global qui pose véritablement problème et qui m'amène donc à répondre à la question qui a été posée. Je dirais d'abord 
Quand on parle de résilience, cela signifie que c'est la capacité d'une communauté ou d'une société, voire même d'une personne, à se relever durablement d'une d'un choc qui l'aura marqué ou qui aura été destructeur. Et si véritablement on veut donc adresser ces questions-là, il faut peut-être le voir autrement et différemment. Je donne une anecdote. Ce matin, j'écoutais la radio dans ma voiture et puis j'entendais parler du Soudan. Au niveau de la frontière tchadienne, les humanitaires annonçaient quelques 160 000 réfugiés. Ça, c'est les statistiques qu'ils avaient entre les mains. Mais les responsables disent qu'on est largement au-delà de 150 000 réfugiés acceptés au Tchad, qu'il faut s'en occuper. Donc déjà, nous avons des données qui ne sont pas fiables pour pouvoir décider, pour apporter des éléments de résilience assez holistiques pour soutenir donc ces populations. Et du coup, je suis convaincu que dans cette partie du monde, mais la question, donc la question de résilience va être abordée vraiment partiellement ou très mal gérée pour sortir donc les nécessités de leur situation. Alors pour nous aussi, et pour répondre directement à votre question, nous pensons et nous sommes convaincus qu'il faut agir sur trois leviers clés si on veut adresser effectivement la résilience dans le contexte que nous connaissons ici, nous connaissons ici dans notre région. Le premier point, le premier levier, c'est les systèmes d'information de qualité et des alertes précoces en termes donc de prévision. Si nous n'avons pas ces systèmes-là de qualité, il sera difficile de dérouler la suite pour pouvoir donc mettre en place des systèmes donc de résilience fiables. Donc pour nous aussi, les systèmes d'information constituent le premier pilier à regarder pour pouvoir résoudre plein de problèmes qui vont venir à l'aval. Le deuxième point, c'est que nous constatons que malgré les informations fournies, les décideurs n'ont pas encore pris la mesure de la situation. Peut-être, je ne dirais pas prise de conscience, mais peut-être qu'il faut en faire plus pour qu'ils sachent que la situation est grave et préoccupante. C'est pourquoi le deuxième point pour le CILS, c'est vraiment d'engager les plaidoyers de haut niveau sur les enjeux liés à la résilience. Et je suis convaincu que tant que les premiers responsables des pays ne sont pas au cœur du dispositif et que les plans de réponse restent encore une question des ministères, ça va être difficile d'y arriver. Le dernier point ou le dernier pilier pour le CIRS, 
c'est vraiment, il faut changer de paradigme dans la préparation des plans de réponse. Les plans de réponse qui sont adressés aujourd'hui avec leur contenu que nous connaissons, basés essentiellement sur les questions de l'alimentation d'urgence ou de secours d'urgence, pour nous aussi, ça reste encore, j'allais dire, pas consistant pour pouvoir prendre en charge la question de résilience au regard de ce que nous connaissons. C'est pourquoi nous pensons qu'il faut repenser l'élaboration, la conception des programmes, des plans de réponse, et cela pour nous passe nécessairement par des actions intégrées. Les actions intégrées, ça veut dire qu'on va au-delà de réponses alimentaires, de réponses d'urgence, pour voir de façon holistique et intégrer tous les aspects liés donc à la dimension sociale de la résilience, qui ne semble pas être pris en compte. Voilà un peu ce que je peux dire par rapport donc à votre question. Je vous remercie et je fais mienne encore une fois de plus euh, la contribution de l'Union africaine et je vous remercie. Bon, un grand merci à, à vous, Monsieur Njada, pour cette intervention. Um, you have touched again also on some very, very important points. You have highlighted the particular fragility of the Sahel region, which we know is particularly impacted by climate change, by demographic pressures, and also uh, now an increase in forced migration. Um, so really a region that we all need to pay a lot of attention to. And it's great that your organization is, is active uh, in particular to remedy the drought situation there. You have also, your, your last three conclusions are so in line with the recommendations of the GFPR. So you made the point that we need to improve our early warning systems, but that early warning systems are only as good as the dissemination of that information then to the key decision makers in the country so that they can act accordingly with those early warning um, measures or suggested measures. And then you also made the point that, uh, of course, humanitarian aid remains hugely important, but we need to become smarter about combining humanitarian aid with resilience building measures. This is something that I think the development community has been talking about for a long time, but concretely to get there is still um, a, a challenge. So, so thank you so much for, for your uh, comments. We will now have one final speaker. Um, we're very pleased to, um, to have him join us. Um, he will be speaking in English. So now, again, we need to switch back. Uh, so for our English-speaking audience, please use your GLOW button and select original audio. Notre dernière intervenant va parler en anglais. Madame, Alors, je voulais m'excuser parce que j'ai une audience. Je voulais laisser mes collègues continuer avec vous. Si vous ne voyez pas d'inconvénient. Parfait. Merci beaucoup, messieurs, pour nous joindre. Au revoir. Merci. Alors, notre dernier intervenant va parler en anglais. Et pour notre public francophone, vous pouvez maintenant changer autrefois. Um, uh, vous pouvez sélectionner français 
dans votre bouton globe situé en bas de l'écran. Um, welcome to uh, Amos Nayakayu, who is the Deputy Director of the Drought Contingency Planning and Response Department with the National Drought Management Authority in Nairobi, Kenya. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, you have just heard from our uh, previous speaker about uh, some of the challenges related to, to climate change in the Sahel region. It would be great for you to take us through um, how you are dealing with uh, some of the drought issues in Kenya, which of course has been impacted, I think quite heavily in, in the recent year or so. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Mr. Nekayu. Uh, thank you very much, Charlotte, and uh, greetings from Kenya to all the participants in this webinar. Uh, I'm pleased to be here and indeed privileged to be part of this uh, conversation. Uh, I happen to be out in the field. I'm not in the office, so I had to look for a makeshift place to sit. Uh, uh, to be able to participate in this webinar. Uh, indeed, I want to appreciate uh, the presenters that have uh, spoken ahead of me and uh, those that have also given rejoined us. Uh, very eloquent and very enlightened uh, individuals there. And uh, I'm, I'm really enlightened as well, uh, taking advantage of uh, their exposure. Uh, in Kenya, we we are we are just actually coming out of a, a drought that has been regarded as the worst in 40 years because a drought of uh, close to similar magnitude was last seen in the year 1984 and uh, when you look at uh, all that period uh, we've had a series of uh, droughts all through uh, and the truth is with the the realities of climate change, the frequency, intensity, and severity of these droughts is, uh, has been increasing. And consequently, uh, we are losing uh, livelihood assets, we are losing opportunities, we are losing investments uh, over time, uh, such that households are increasingly becoming food insecure, with the numbers increasing over time with every severe drought that we encounter. As we speak right now, uh, the figures that we have as estimates of uh, food insecure populations in Kenya is close to 5 million. Yes, we are lucky. We've received substantial rains in the last uh, season of rains between March and uh, May of this year. And that we hope it will reverse uh, some of the effects that we've faced uh, consequent to failures of five successive rainfall seasons. Uh, in our drought management, uh, drought risk management and climate change adaptation role as a, a public institution in Kenya, we monitor drought, uh, drought progression, how drought evolves. And uh, this we do by tracking indicators that give us a pointer as to the drought situation. And these indicators can broadly be categorized into three categories. The first uh, category is the environmental indicators, basically biophysical indicators, 
how the precipitation is, the kind of temperatures we are, we are seeing, how much water we have available in the water sources, and also how the vegetation condition seems to, 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 to be. And then we have uh, production indicators that uh, is, is the second category of indicators. And this basically uh, presents uh, pointers to how the livelihoods are performing uh, against the prevailing uh, climatic conditions. And then we have a third set of uh, indicators that we track, which we call the utilization indicators. And this basically uh, are impact indicators, how the drought situation is impacting on uh, the health, on uh, school attendance, on generally on uh, socioeconomics, probably ability to access food. And uh, the, the, the system that we operate, uh, I would want to mention at this point that uh, it was voted uh, the best in the South, South Triangular Corporation recently. Uh, and, and, and we believe that still there is much we've done and there is more we need, we need to do. Uh, this system uh, defines the drought in terms of phases where during normal times when you have good precipitation and all the indicators that we are tracking are within the normal seasonal ranges, then we say we are at normal drought phase. And then that phase, of course, uh, if we find that the environmental indicators are falling short of the long-term averages for the season, then we declare that we have slid from normal phase to drought alert phase, the very first drought, uh, phase of drought, which can also be equated to mild drought phase. And then should the production indicators that I mentioned also swing outside the long-term averages together now with the environmental indicators, then you advance to a severe drought phase that we call the drought alarm phase. And then if we are unfortunate enough that we don't receive rains and uh, the environmental indicators together with the production indicators are joined by the utilization indicators such as malnutrition, such as the school enrollment, retention, uh, conflicts around resources, then we say we've advanced to drought emergency phase which is the severest drought phase. And then of course, uh, should, uh, uh, should we receive rains at any of those stages, then of course we hit the recovery uh, phase, uh, the recovery trajectory, which is also another phase of, of drought. So essentially you don't have to go around all the, 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 the phases before you come back to normal. You can hit recovery phase at any stage of the drought phases. These indicators we are monitoring are both ground indicators, what we collect directly from the, the field. And also we complement this by remote sensor data, including uh, remote sensed rainfall uh, imagery, remote sensed vegetation imagery. And all these are analyzed and we are able to downscale this to the lowest political unit. In Kenya, uh, of course, you have the national uh, uh, unit, and then we have the county as the subnational unit, and below the, the, the county, we have the sub-county as uh, the next unit, and the lowest political unit is uh, the ward. So we are able to downscale all this ward level 
And then we have assisted communities in a participatory process to arrive at contingency plans that can be activated in the event that uh, the communities encounter drought. And of course, a, uh, a typical definition of drought is you have two consecutive rain seasons failing. And then uh, with that, uh, once we have that and the drought phase, uh, the, the drought is, is considered to have happened, then we can activate the contingency plans by identifying what intervention priorities are captured in the contingency plan, isolating what requires to be done based on the ground realities, and formulate a response plan which can then be activated to address the response issues. Uh, the functions that we have, apart from the early warning, which I've dwelt a lot on, uh, include uh, drought response, which I deal with, and then there is also the other component of resilience building, which actually is the investment aspects. And these investment aspects now indicate, uh, or rather provide the coping capacities for drought. So essentially, we require to invest more in a, in a, a functional drought uh, and a climate risk management system in Africa. And we need also to start tracking to what extent we are able to, or rather we've been able to to comply to some of the commitments that our nations have been able to make, especially uh, the Maputo uh, Declaration of 2003, the Malabo Declaration of 2014. And you realize that even with the kind of commitments of up to 10% uh, of national budgets uh, expected to be committed for food and agriculture, it's only Malawi that has been able to comply about that. And then we need to ask ourselves in terms of being able to produce food for ourselves, to what extent have we been able to harness uh, the potentials presented by uh, technology? Uh, and also to what extent we have been able to take advantage of the youthful population in Africa? Because it's like we have left food production to the aging population. So it's, it's a broad area. It requires probably a, a whole hour to, to discuss, but I would want to pause uh, my contribution at that point And thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Nakayo, for this very detailed look at your uh, the very important work that your authority is doing in Kenya. We very much appreciate your intervention. We are now moving to the Q&A session of this event, and please continue submitting your questions to us in the chat function. Um, we're going to direct the first question to Joost Swinnen, um, who happens to be an expert in value chains. And we've had a number of questions that have come in on, on um, value chains. Uh, one of them is from uh, coming to us from Omar Haramaya University in Ethiopia. Yo, the question is, what, what is the role of a value chain approach in building resilience in African food systems? And again, this mirrors a number of other questions uh, along the same topic. Uh, thanks very much, Charlotte. And, and I personally also want to thank all the, the speakers and the discussions. I thought this was a really rich, uh, a rich discussion, rich set of views that we have, uh, have received here over the past uh, hours. Um, on the value chain issue, you know, value chains are extremely important in resilience. The, I mean, we often think about, we talk about producers and consumers, okay, but the producers and the consumers often do not interact with each other directly. The farmers, very seldom, well, very seldom, uh, 
in, in, from a global perspective, but certainly also from a country perspective, the vast majority of the commodities that consumers' households are buying is not from farmers directly. They buy it from shops, they buy it from retailers, from traders, etc. So there's a whole set of intermediate steps between the farmer as a producer of, of agricultural products and the household as a final consumer. Okay, and this value chain is, and so if this value chain doesn't work very well, that means that the prices for the consumer will be higher and the prices for the producer will be lower. So the efficiency argument is important in terms of income generation and the cost of food. The way these uh, value chains are organized have a very important uh, impact on how resilient they are to shocks. And so if they can break down easily, that means the, the connection between the producer and the consumer is actually broken down, again, leading to lower producer prices and higher consumer prices. The Another point is in terms of employment and growth. If you look at in terms of development, what you see is that in low income countries, typically 50% of consumer spending goes to the farmer, but in high income countries, only 10% or something, and you should clearly make that evolving. So the growth in terms of employment creation, good paying jobs, etc., is often in the off-farm part of the value chains. Also for youth, I think it's a very important area of growth, potential employments, often in small and medium enterprises based in the rural areas, etc. And then the last point is that the value chain can be a very important source of finance, of information, of technology, risk management, etc. Access to seeds, for example, fertilizer often come through the value chains rather than direct uh, connections with supplying companies. And so all of this, for all these reasons, it's, it's a very important component of, of looking at resilience. Thank you. And maybe just a quick follow-up question, Yo. Um, we actually concluded uh, after or the first uh, stage of COVID that value chains were more resilient perhaps than we thought. Uh, so maybe just to get some good news also, could you talk a little bit about how, you know, were you surprised by those findings and what in particular seemed to work well? Yeah, I think the, right, so uh, we were initially, as many people, okay, uh, basically looking at reports of uh, rotten produce on the fields, of trucks standing in line at the borders, not being able to, to transport, of uh, far, uh, basically processing plants being uh, being locked down, being locked because far, uh, uh, people could no longer work together, etc. But if we look back now in terms of what has happened over the, the two years, really, is that really relatively early on, uh, Farm, uh, people, people, farmers, but uh, more uh, general, I think uh, companies, but individuals became very innovative. Okay, and part of it was investments in new technology. We see the massive growth of digital and e-commerce throughout lower and middle income countries. But at the same time, we also see just changes in the way um, the process, the exchange have been organized, etc. And that has been, uh, I think, a, a very promising and very encouraging sign and set of observation that we see that these uh, value chains have proved remarkably resilient. And hopefully this can also be a sign going forward to, to the other shocks that we still would expect going forward. Thank you. Great, thanks Thanks very much. Could I ask our other panelists to turn on their cameras? And uh, I will now uh, direct a few questions that we've received to Sam Benin. Um, there are two questions about the same topic, but they're slightly different. So the first question comes to us from Shadrach Mufuli. Um, what specifically have been the direct impacts of the Ukraine-Russia conflict on food security and agricultural production in Africa? 
and what are the recommendations to mitigate this impact on Africa? And then the second question, also with regard to this conflict, uh, basically says, you know, the report does talk about the impacts of the Russia-Ukraine war, as well as climate change. What about crises and conflicts in Africa themselves, such as the war in Sudan? Over to you, Sam. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Charlotte. Maybe I start with the second one. Yeah, um, the second one is, is um, the war in Sudan is important. I think um, maybe we, it was not singled out um, on two things. The first one is that because it's, it's on the continent, it is considered as part of the general terminology of conflict. So when we talk of conflict, we're referring to war, civil strife, political instability, all of that in the continent. So Sudan is, 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 is implied there. Um, and so that would be my first one. The second one um, is, so it's not that um, um, Sudan is being, is being ignored at all. And the second point will be that because Sudan is more recent and when the, at the time of the report, um, the war of Sudan war was not there. So that is why it was not mentioned, but um, it, 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 it is there. So now let me get to the first, the first point on the, um, the impact of the Ukraine, um, Russia war on, on Africa. So, well, there, there are two parts, right? The first part is um, at the start of the war, itself just um, disrupting the supply chain in terms of um, Africa depending on, on Ukraine and Russia for, for key things, um, including wheat, um, fertilizer, and things like that. So it's just a disruption of those things. Um, fertilizer as in, you know, key in production. So already you are, you are impacting the way you, you, are, you, are, you are producing food to start with, but also in, on the consumption end of it in terms of demand for things like, like wheat. So if there's no um, wheat, then a lot of, because it's consumed a lot. And so that's the part. Now, over time, um, as um, um, the war has protracted, then you also find the, what we call downstream supply chain issues, because it also other countries are being affected by different, different components that Africa depend on. So you have also the indirect impact through the other countries that Africa depend on that are also being um, 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 impacted by the, by the Russia-Ukraine war. So you have the direct effect and also you have the indirect effects. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sam, for uh, the, the, your answers to those two questions. Um, John, let me turn to you. In your comments, you spoke about uh, that perhaps too much emphasis is going on crops that will be exported uh, from Africa to other parts of the world. And I just want to dig in a little bit deeper on that on that question, uh, on that point you made. Uh, on the one hand, of course, one would think that it makes more sense to grow crops that can then feed uh, the domestic populations of the countries in Africa. On the other hand, export crops do provide export earnings. Uh, the value chains for those sometimes are actually better developed than those uh, in domestic markets, and they provide important livelihood as well. So how do we strike the right balance here? And maybe just picking up on Sam's point on fertilizers, you know, we, we know that fertilizer use has been impacted by the Russia-Ukraine war because uh, the, the African markets are small in comparison to some of the larger markets. So traders have tended to favor the larger markets, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate, but probably a commercial reality. So how much do we know about the 
the reduced fertilizer that was applied last year, what do you think? How much of that would have gone maybe to crops that were there for export and some of those even not food crops uh, versus uh, crops that would have bolstered some of the, um, uh, the domestic food production? Yeah, that's a uh, the, the, because if, indeed the one of the the channels um, that the, the war has impacted Africa is through the uh, uh, increase in in inputs, uh, especially fertilizer, um, and the 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 problem with fertilizer it's mostly used for you know yes ex some export crop but also uh, crops such as uh, uh, maize such as rice. Uh, which happens to be, uh, 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 you know, with a very large uh, consumption base. So the increase in production cost as a result of increase in in fertilizer uh, prices has increased the food price and 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 uh, eventually reduced the consumption of those. Uh, uh, but you know, it's countries have adopted this. Uh, um, uh, many African countries this strategy of exporting. You know, favoring export crops uh, to improve the balance of payment uh, because it's very important. Uh, to, you know, they need those uh, uh, foreign exchange uh, to pay for import of food. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when the the war uh, hit, as uh, uh, we say, the, those 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 uh, export uh, went down. The foreign exchange um, uh, 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 was uh, reduced, and the you know depreciation, and then led to uh, increase in, in in price as well, and again uh, food insecurity. But let let us connect this to um, the also the the whole issue of, uh, of value value chain, uh, because uh, uh, the crop or production diversification and sophistication are key to food system resilience. And the only way to build that resilience through diversification and of sophistication is to develop those local value chain, uh, uh, which means uh, instead of producing only maize, uh, for example, let's extend the chain to produce maize flour, to produce oil-based uh, maize, to produce animal feed maize. When you extend the value chain, then you broaden that local uh, uh, market. And, and of course, it's, it's become a, a strong buffer to uh, 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 shock coming uh, from outside, again, because they're exporting raw uh, uh, crops while importing those processed, uh, processed food. Uh, so that's, that's what I was saying. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, John. Do we still have Amos Nakayo with us? We have a question about uh, how much can irrigation systems help in a situation of drought and maybe giving us a picture of that in particular in Kenya, uh, how widespread is irrigation and how much of a solution is it and what are some of the challenges in, uh, in increasing irrigation in your part of the world? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, yes, irrigation is a, is an option uh, of addressing uh, food insecurity, but again, uh, it requires uh, to be handled in a manner that uh, it is supposed to support 
the predominant livelihood engagements of uh, the communities where it is uh, it is being developed. Of course, uh, when you compare the, the potential for irrigation, uh, say in Kenya, against uh, what other countries that have succeeded with the good water management have been able to do, you realize that probably we have uh, more water than, uh, uh, than most people think. Uh, compare our situation with, uh, with with how Israel has been able to to manage issues around water. So it's, it, essentially, it's about of, uh, it's about being able to appropriately harness technologies in a way that these technologies can be able to uh, help manage uh, the limited water resources. Of course, the water can never be uh, ad lib. But then, how do we ensure that uh, the, the the little that is available is uh, is utilized, uh, taking advantage of the technologies to recycle the water, uh, and also the, the the kind of technologies that are even more water efficient than probably some of what are being deployed now. Because to a large extent, you will find that where we are uh, uh, developing irrigation, then we are looking at uh, probably availing the water surface irrigation. But then what are the options that can be deployed? And these are there, the technology is there, is a question of uh, harnessing it and uh, deploying it appropriately. And then we also face the other risk, and that's why I'm really particular about aligning investments in irrigation to predominant livelihoods. If the predominant livelihood is pastoralism, and then you are introducing irrigation for irrigated crop production, you risk the possibility of uh, that not being adopted. And if it's adopted, it is disruptive to how the communities uh, are used to, to, to survive. Probably this irrigation should uh, look at uh, the water needs for forage production and then shift uh, the, 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 the potential of the livestock species that these people have from probably the grade they are to a grade that can be able to uh, give higher returns uh, on the basis of uh, the increased capacity of, uh, of forage availability and probably water availability. But then uh, you'll find that uh, like in this country, we, we are keen on converting some of these pastoral rangelands into irrigated areas. And at the end of the day, you end up with the, the nomadic pastoralists shifting away from those areas and creating pressure in uh, the remaining rangelands. Uh, and of course, the, the upshot of that would be possibilities of conflicts, either uh, in the areas where they are moving to concentrate or them coming back to the, the traditional grazing areas and even grazing on the irrigated crops. So you, you see all those possibilities happening. But then the point is, Technology should be harnessed and it should be deployed in a manner that makes sense to the communities that are supposed to take advantage of those technologies. Uh, and add to that uh, what my brother mentioned about the value chain approach. All this should be linked in a manner that we have a way of uh, uh, direct linkage to market, direct linkage to uh, the different players so that all these different players in the value chain have a role to play and uh, that way, then you create employment along the way 
and such employments will relieve some of the, of the pressure uh, from uh, uh, agricultural production uh, as the main source of incomes. Because the moment uh, we are providing uh, uh, employments along the way, then reliance on a climate uh, on a climate shock uh, prone uh, livelihood sources uh, will end up being attended to in some one or in some way. So essentially, uh, we we have potential for irrigation. We have rivers, of course. Uh, there is the Nile Treaty that has also its own implications on uh, what we can use from the catchment that feeds the Nile. But then uh, we have other rivers that uh, flow into the Indian Ocean, and uh, so we, we tend to look at the water, get into the Indian Ocean, and then wonder why we didn't use it. So the potential is there. Uh, there is a lot that uh, uh, can still be done, and it can address the food insecurity. Uh, I hope uh, I've been able to respond because along the way I lost the uh, network. I had to rejoin the meeting, and I found myself being called to, to respond to the question. So I hope uh, I was not that much irrelevant. Thank you. No, that was that was actually perfect, and I, I think it's a great answer because we all know that Africa still largely relies on rain-fed uh, agriculture. So I think you've really nicely highlighted, uh, in particular in the context of climate change, increasing droughts, that there is a huge need to increase the percent of land that is uh, irrigated. And yet at the same time, obviously, there are no quick fixes, right? We need to be very smart about this technology. And perhaps there's an opportunity actually to leapfrog uh, into some more sophisticated uh, and, and resource-friendly, water-use-friendly irrigation systems. And that we need to be careful, right? Uh, we, it's, it's not a panacea for all uh, agricultural land. And there are big differences, obviously, between pastoral and, and cropland. So with that, we were reaching the end of this really, really interesting uh, seminar and, and, and question and answer period. And it's now my great pleasure to turn over to um, Adam Kwa, who will uh, try to summarize some of these discussions. He heads uh, IFPRI's office in Nigeria. And um, Kwa, let me ask you one question that has, or they've come up a couple of times also from our audience that maybe you can build into your reflections at the end of the seminar, and they have to do with governance um, and, you know, how much of an issue is governance or let's say poor governance in, uh, in a situation of food insecurity and crisis. Uh, so thank you for building that into your reflections as well. Thank you, Charlotte. And I agree with you. It's been a very interesting session. So thank you very much to the presenters, the panelists, and participants for a very lively discussion on these issues. So five um, quick points for me to close. And Charlotte, I'll answer your um, question as I address these five points. The first is just to turn our minds back as I summarize here to where we started. But um, Sam um, described the motivation for focusing on Africa um, because of the level of um, food crisis on the continent, which a lot of us know about. Uh, the implication for me there, you know, some cited numbers that show that the, you know, the numbers is double that, uh, uh, that of other regions in terms of food insecurity. And the implication for me there is for participants on the call, many of my hope are from the region, please let's read their report. I think, it, you know, there, there are a lot of lessons there from other regions as well, and, and to see some of the successes from other regions and how we may learn 
uh, some lessons. So let's read and also react to the report. Use it um, for researchers on the call. Use it uh, in the in the coming months. Um, and the second point is that is just to cast our minds back to the chart that Yo showed at the uh, beginning, his opening remarks, where we see the lines for poverty and also for undernutrition um, going down. And then, you know, you see the sudden um, upturn from 2016, 2017 or so. And my question there is, well, what will happen over the next 10 years, right? And that's where a lot of the discussions that we are having here will, will come in. So is it is it possible to turn the tide, you know, for the sake of the um, poor and undernourished across the continent who are, who are really very many? Um, and that will depend a lot on, um, on all stakeholders, you know, on, on governance, which you mentioned, Charlotte, um, on the public sector, private sector, where business investments will be important, um, uh, research, uh, and, and so on. The third point is uh, linking to a point that John made uh, about the variation across the continent, which um, resonated with many people throughout the discussion. So no need to um, dwell on that too much. The, 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 the reaction from Prof. Julio, I think one of the points he made was that the AU is looking at um, regional, uh, you know, different policies for that are appropriate for regions, but also for countries, and that's that's important to keep in mind as we look at different types of crises and also different types of positive responses. Right, looking from the Sahel, uh, from Burkina, where there are the political issues coming all the. If you look at the map and you come all the way through the continent, right, you look at Nigeria, look at DRC with the conflict issues, uh, Sudan, which we talked about, Ethiopia. Um, uh, unfortunately, the giants of, of Africa, right? Some of these large populous countries are where we see a lot of these, these crises. And um, this calls for paying attention to the regional differentiation. However, having said that, we I was also thinking that we see some similarities here and perhaps there's a room for learning from various regions. You know, we've seen the Sahel, but also in Kenya, uh, some of the approaches towards dealing with uh, climate resilience. All right, and then last point um, is uh, on a more hopeful note about um, value chains and uh, the, the point being made here that we can look at some types of diversification, uh, improving uh, um, opportunities for perhaps producing animal feed, um, which would address both uh, undernutrition, but also address the quality of nutrition across the continent. And then uh, to close, Charlotte, in, in response to your question, I think someone mentioned in the chat, uh, uh, in the Q&A about the democracy um, uh, deficiency across the continent, um, referring, of course, to this issue about governance, which is so, so important, so crucial. Um, and I would say that uh, one of the issues that we are facing in, in Africa is actually the, the low government expenditure, um, uh, low public expenditure. Um, on important public goods and, uh, and, and improving the responsiveness of governments to the population would hopefully improve, uh, improve that gap that we have. Uh, thank you very much, Charlotte. And also thanks also to all the, the panelists and participants. Back to you, Charlotte, over. Thank you very much, Kwal. Let me thank all of our speakers for your very good interventions, our audience for your excellent questions. Merci à tout le monde. Et à très bientôt dans la prochaine séminaire d'IFPRI.